0: Welcome to The Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler and I'm your host. In The Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. So, in today's episode of The Artist Appeals, we're going to talk to an artist and illustrator has been in this field for some time, and he's highly recognized. He's won the Hugo Award for Best Professional Artist twice. This is science fiction's highest honor for an artist. He's also won the World Fantasy Award, and he is the inventor and illustrator of the original Captain Morgan, For the Captain Morgan bottle label. How cool is that? Please join me as we talk today with Don Mates. So, hey, Don, how are you? I'm doing quite well. (laughs) Well, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on. I really, really am. You know, we always like to start in the podcast with a little bit of background And I was looking you up on the internet, and so you made Captain Morgan. You made the man, the Captain Morgan on the bottle, right? (laughs) Yes. How did you get...
1: Let me clarify that a bit.
0: Yeah, please. I
1: originated the character when it was released by Joseph Seagrams and Sons in 1982.
0: They were Mm -hmm. looking
1: for some kind of iconic figure that was representative of of Captain Morgan for this <laughs> iconic New York, indeed you know, of a spiced rum.
0: Uh-huh. I understand
1: that there was some kind of a Captain Morgan rum in England prior to this, but their their big thing was the original spiced rum. And that was the product they released. And at the time I had an agent in New York and he um, hooked me up with Joseph Seagram's and Sons and I uh, produced some uh, preliminary sketches, and then I got Joseph Seagram's and Sons to um, approve the sketches I did, and then they put it on the bottle. There's a story behind that, if you want to hear it. Yeah, tell uh, us. Alarming.
0: (laughs) Alarming. I want an alarming story. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh,
1: Well, all right. But... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what had happened was uh, I received this job late in the year, pretty much at, at this time of year, near, near Christmas. And on January 2nd, I was supposed to bring in these um, preliminary ideas to Joseph Seagram's to see if um, I was the artist to suit their direction. Okay. So I did three preliminary ideas based on what I knew of Henry Morgan, who you know, sacked Panama and did all this other wonderful things back in the, um, 1600s. And so oh, I was doing okay. as much research as I could. And then I was, um, thinking about, you know, how to sell rum with some of these ideas. And I ended up doing three. And
0: did it look like your idea? Like, w- did you have pictures of this pirate or it was completely well, from? Sort of. Okay.
1: I did three different ideas to give them options and I did them in oil paint. And back then I was living in a third floor apartment in central Connecticut. And uh, it was a small apartment, and I wanted to make a nice presentation with these oil sketches. They were about 8 by 10 inches. Okay. And I had matting and framing materials in my parents' basement a couple of miles away. So I had worked on these paintings, and in the winter, oil paint takes a long time to dry, so they were still kind of wet. Uh
0: Uh-oh. And
1: uh, that night, it had snowed. And so oh, I no. was cleaning off the car and then I was going to my parents' house to do the, um, do the matting for these sketches. And when I got to my parents, I realized that the sketches weren't with me. And I realized I left Uh-oh. them on the roof of the car. <gasps> and so, you know, I'm, I'm driving looking for these wet oil paintings on the side <laughs> oh of the God. road. And, you they know, I'm going. Off. my career is up in smoke. I'm going to die. It's going to be awful. How am I going to go tomorrow into New York City with these things if they're on the side? And so um, with this worry, I'm driving, and um, around the corner from where my apartment was was a McDonald's. And um, in Connecticut, when it snows, they put salt and sand on the roads to keep the cars from sliding around.
0: Yeah, and double whammy. And I
1: spotted my um, my three paintings in the road in front of McDonald's with the breakfast crowd driving all over them. Oh, so no. I'm kind of you know mm-hmm. like stopping the traffic and 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 blubbering into these wet oil paintings that now two were face down with grit and and oh. nasty stuff, <laughs> and then one was face up with tire tracks. Oh. And so uh, I, you know, went back to my parents' house and cut the mats. Meanwhile, I'm trying to, like, move the oil paint aside and get the dirt and the grit and the salt out from under it. And, of course, it was masonite. And, you know, when the cars ran over it face down, they embedded the sand in. So there were all these divots in the dirt. And it was pretty nasty. And so I'm trying to, like, fill in the holes underneath the wet oil paint. And um, I was trying to recover them. Um, All night long and, um, you know, next thing, you know, I didn't go to sleep that night and the next morning I'm going into New York City and to the (laughs) um, board of directors with with not an ounce of sleep and worry all over me wondering if Uh. they're going to find out that, you know, the Captain Morgan character they were looking to have me do was actually roadkill.
0: (laughs) Don, you're the original mixed media artist. Now you can just claim that you invented mixed media, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, anyway, um, I ended up doing five different ad campaigns for the Captain Morgan Spiced Rome product. I was sort of their go-to pirate guy for, for Captain Morgan until Joseph Seagram passed away. And mm. then uh, he, his sons divested themselves of some of the products, and they sold Captain Morgan to Diageo. Mm-hmm. And Diageo is an um, England-based distributor. They do Johnny Walker Red and Guinness and a few other distributors. Uh-huh when they purchased the product, they phased out the artwork that Seagram's did and then changed it with their own. And so there's an artist now on the label whose name is uh, Greg Manches, who Mm -hmm. used my artwork as a guide to revamp, if you will. Yeah,
0: yeah. The evolution of logos.
1: The basic um, character with his leg up in the air was, was my idea. And with those three sketches, they chose the pose from one, the costume from another, and the background from a third. So it was sort of uh, all three of them were necessary to make the Captain Morgan happen.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, what we can really take away from that is that you didn't give up. You still went in, you went in with those pieces.
1: Yes. And th- that's something I'd like to talk about. I mean, people say, you know, oh, this, this person is very talented. You know, they have, they have this great talent. And my opinion is that talent is actually three factors it's intuition. Persistence and opportunity. It's a blend of all three of those. And so, you know, the the sum total of a talented Mm -hmm. person is, you know, their idea to be able to persevere, to have the instincts to be able to find their direction and being able to be in the right place at the right time.
0: Excellent. Yes, I agree. You are so right on with that advice. It really does take persistence. So, Don, you have been recognized as. You've won the Hugo Award for Best Professional Artist twice, and you're, you know, you've got the Chelsea Award for Outstanding Achievement from the Association of Science Fiction and Fantasy Art. You know, I was looking at your your website, and you really kind of have like two styles, right? You have these pirates you make, and then you have science fiction and fantasy art. How did you find your niche?
1: Well, let me explain a little bit about that. Yeah. There are two ways of going about creative things, and uh, one of and both of them are sort of a two edged sword. Two edged sword. <clears throat> they involve um, either doing being the person that does the and then fill in the blank. You know the statement. You know I mean they are specialized. They can brand. They have you know a specific marketing direction. They are the guy that does or the or the person that does this and then you know enter your own blurb afterwards right then um and you know that's that's wonderful it's easy to brand you can market it you can point that at the world and and make your make your place the bad thing about that is you know if you find your ladder leaning against the wrong wall you got to start all over again you know if that doesn't really you know ring the bell you're a one-trick pony and then the other flip of that is that you kind of do you're a you know a a talented everywhere, but a master of none where you do everything. And um, you really don't have a simple, he is the guy that does the, and then fill in a simple blank. You know, when you say he does, well, he does this, he does that, he does this this and this and this and this and this, people kind of get bored and their eyes glaze over because, you know, there's just too much information. So, but on the other hand, it's really difficult for that person to fall out of favor because they can always fall back on their other resources that they've developed in their, in their course of pursuits. And I'm more of the second kind where um, I'd like to say that I'm a, it's like an adaptive visual problem solver. I've yes. done everything from doing logos to book covers, to illustrating books, to advertising art, taught for a year. I worked as an animated um, concept artist for two motion pictures.
0: Oh, cool! Painted
1: pictures of people's pets. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I don't just do one thing. No, and you don't. It's very difficult to you know have a website that says, okay, he does this, and that's why I split it because partially because I've done something like two hundred and something imaginative book covers and imaginative art, and I really enjoy flexing my imaginative muscles. And I've also done all this uh, pirate art. And some of my favorite artistic heroes were uh, Howard Pyle, who did The Book of Pirates, and Mm -hmm. NC Wyeth, who illustrated Treasure Island. And these were big inspirations to me. And I wanted to continue what they started by uh, delving into this genre. And At one point, uh, a lot of illustrators were leaving New York City, and it wasn't just one point. It was like, you know, Frederick Remington did this back at the turn of the century, and they went out west and they painted western art. Yeah. And I just couldn't find myself doing something like that. And I moved to Florida and decided that, um, you know, the whole pirate genre is something I'd like to pursue because some of my favorite artists had, had gone along this path, and I'd like to kind of continue it. And since I live in, nearby where these pirates were active i can provide some authenticity that you know another artist might not be able to do
0: yeah hey did you know the actual full quote for jack of all trades master of none is actually jack of all trades is a master of none but oftentimes better than a master of one ah
1: yeah that's perfect
0: yeah that's you
1: well, you know, I've, I've done lots of things, you know, I mean, my first job, if you could call it that, when I was still in art school, a local bakery uh, approached the school looking for artists to uh, help them out. And they were doing a promotional campaign to put um, faces on bagels. It was the Lenders Bagel <laughs> Bakery. And so my first paid art job was, you know, putting cartoon faces on bagels and they made <laughs> necklaces out of them and sold them to people.
0: How bizarre. I love it.
1: I tried doing sign painting and, you know, of course, I had some typos that were rather embarrassing, so I had to <laughs> leave that.
0: <laughs> Can you give us an example? Well, I okay. Hear.
1: When I was in art school, I vacationed, or not vacationed. I actually worked up in um, New Hampshire on a, on a lake and I was doing uh, construction. I was a carpenter's helper and I worked in a lumber yard and there were actually a couple of bad sign jobs up there. The first one was, I worked at this lumber yard and the guy had an advertising sign out in the field. It was faded. So he wanted me to buff up the lettering that was there. It was a white Mm -hmm. sign with red and black lettering. And so I went up a ladder with my can of red paint and, um, it was in a field and it was near, near a road because they wanted to advertise. And uh, it was early in the summer and New Hampshire has these nasty creatures called black flies. And oh, they I know them! Like, like zillions of mosquitoes, and they were harboring in that field. So I'm up a ladder, oh. trying to swat these flies that are eating me alive while painting a sign. Oh, they! And hurt. I oops the red paint uh, down the front of the white sign, and um, you know I'm getting hooted at and tooted at by these cars <laughs> while they're laughing at me, trying to be the, the the sign painter up a ladder, spilling paint all over the sign.
0: <laughs> Those black flies really hurt.
1: On Lakeside, there was a friend who um, set up a a hamburger stand. They were selling hamburger, hot dogs, and French fries to the to the boat people at the marina, and it was like in the parking lot. And it was a it was an A frame with tar paper roof. And they wanted me to write hamburgers, hot dogs, French fries in white on their tar paper roof on you know that faced the lake, so people would know that you know lunch was open. Yeah, and so I did my job and I got down off the ladder and everybody's laughing at me and I couldn't understand why, you know, I, you know, I did the job. Right. And they said, look what you did. And I went, what? And they said, you wrote hamburgers.
0: <laughs> well, you know, this comes up over and over again in the appeal system where I'm trying to categorize all this information. We talk about art and we talk about turning your art into a product. And over and over again, I've had Artists say try everything, do everything, especially when it comes to art. If it's related to art, try it all, do it all, in order to to find. And it sounds like you have done it all, <laughs> painting signs.
1: Let me explain a little bit. You know, as a as a kid, I was yeah. like everybody else. You know, my first exhibit was on the family refrigerator. Yeah. And uh, I just kind of stuck with it, and partially, I think why I focused on, on the visual arts it had to do with my hearing impairment. Mm. Um, I ended up born with the bones in my right ear not formed properly. And so my mm. hearing wasn't great. And then when I was 13, I got the mumps and they took out all the nerves in that ear. So I'm essentially, you know, I mean, you know, heck with, uh, you know, Vincent Van Gogh, he just cut off his ear. Mine's uh-huh. totally done. You know, I mean, I'm actually a, a one-eared pony. <laughs> and this, affected me in that I didn't like sports, crowded situations. So I was, it helped me become an introvert, which made me focus more on visual things than the world around me. So
0: makes sense. Uh, I was
1: sort of geared, if you will, to being almost an escapist. Yeah. And um, as a, at an early age, I really got into comic books. I, I loved comics. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a reason that kind of set me on my path because Comics and comic books are very much word-oriented. You know, you yes. have word balloons. You know, you look at the picture and you read what they're saying. Yeah. And there's this connection between visual and text
0: mm-hmm. that,
1: that happens in that environment. And so I was attracted to that as opposed to, you know, drawing trees or, or just people. I was into narrative, into story. And that makes a
0: lot of sense.
1: Yes. And um, on the back of these comic books that I was consuming... Madly at around thirteen was an ad that featured Norman Rockwell, and he was um, promoting mm-hmm. the famous artist correspondence course. Mm. He offered the challenge: if you can draw Bambi in this pirate, we can make you an artist.
0: I remember that.
1: Yeah, well, I I did that in my parents oh, no way, to um, enter their program, and so at thirteen, I did my first oil painting, and I was exposed to a art program set up by some of the very best illustrators in the country.
0: And that was like through the mail, right? That was like a yes. mail order? Yes, you
1: got these three books, and they outlined what they expected. They, they told you, you know, their version of what art should be like. And, and of course, illustrators are very communicative. I mean, you know, I mean, when you're a, a fine artist, you pretty much put it out there and say, you know, this is how I feel. This is what I, I think. And it's there. But you know, when you're when you're dealing with, you know, reaching multiple people, you have to be a lot more specific about exactly what story you're trying to tell or what you're trying to reach from those people. It's a yeah. it's very much visual communication. Huh. And that kind of a program was designed in this correspondence course with those people's abilities uh, ingrained in it. And so when you looked at their assignments and their lessons, and when you handed in, you mailed in, you know, the assignments, and they came back with an overlay and a critique. So you really got no way. an education that you really couldn't get in a public school system.
0: Oh, that's cool. And, um,
1: this served me well later when I had a, some artists have, you know, a, a major deal happen to them, mm-hmm. and that sets them on their path. And right. that kind of happened to me when I was about 17. I wanted to be an artist and it was all, you know, fun and games until it got to the point where um, you got to make a living at it. You know, mm. you got to make a decision. You know, you're, what do you do after you graduate high school? You know, you're in this shoot and you come out and you got to pick a direction. And I said, I wanted to be an artist. And, you know, my dad, you know, was was worried about how competitive the field was. And he said, yeah, you know, don't don't be an artist, you know, be. You know, be a plumber, be an electrician, be a mechanic, or a trade. He said, with right. your big mouth, you'd make a great politician. <laughs> and what I found was that my guidance counselor was, um, had a different bent. You know, I told him I wanted to be an artist. And he said, well, you're in the top 10% of your class. You really need to go to a, a college or a university. Mm. And so I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. He said, well, you could fall back on your degree and you can always teach. And I go, well, yeah. you know, that, that makes sense. So I looked at the local colleges and universities, and I actually took a figure drawing class at one of the local universities. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like what I saw. I mean, I had this background when I was 13 of, of oh, illustrative yeah. communicating art. And what I saw being done by the students or in the art facilities at these universities was not what I wanted to learn. So I said, myself, if I, if this is what it takes to get a degree. You can have it, you know? Right. And uh, some things were happening in my life that caused a lot of angst. Mm. One of the things was uh, my mom had had numerous nervous breakdowns and she had just had mm. another one. My sister had uh, went to nursing school. She went through nearly the whole program and then she flunked out. Oh, and she was ahead of me. And so my parents didn't have a lot of money. And, and it kind of made uh you know, when I said I wanted to be an artist and I'm looking at an art school, I kind of was looking sideways at, you know, they're really not excited about, you know, spending a lot more money on somebody who, you know, my dad thinks should be a plumber.
0: Yeah, no return on investment, huh?
1: Yeah. And then there was another thing that was going on, which was um, the draft. You know, I was late oh. um, baby boomer. So 1971, when I graduated high school, Nixon was saying, oh, yeah, we're going to take everybody out of Vietnam. And meanwhile, the body bags keep coming in. Oh, and geez. I had a low draft number. And I'm, and I'm thinking, I don't trust the military not to put me on the front lines with a deaf ear. Because when, when you can't hear where sound is coming from and you really can't, you know, I, you know, people go, hey, Don, catch this. And I go, what, where are oh. you? You know, because oh I can't identify where sounds come from. So I was nervous as hell that I'd be going into a, a situation where I wouldn't be able to spot what's coming at me because I'm, I'm hearing impaired. Yeah. And so with all this going on, I ended up with a bleeding ulcer. Oh, And geez. I almost, uh, well, I ended up with getting three pints of blood. I was, um, you know, I thought I was going to check out for a while there. Wow. And so after that, I said, you know, heck with this. I want I want to be an artist. And um, my art teacher found, gave me a magazine that had some advertisements for various art schools. And I was looking at a couple of them. And, and this is what I'm talking about, your intuition. I yeah. went to interview these schools and they didn't feel right. Mm. And then I went to this one school called the Pear School of Art in Hamden, Connecticut. And again, it was, at, when I went there, it was non accredited. So there was no degree program or anything like that. Yeah. But as I approached the school, there was like a rotunda in front of the um, building where you got um, interviewed. And it felt right. I mm. mean, I looked at it and said, wow, this is a cool place. And then when I went inside and saw, the amount of representation and, and detail that was being done by the students, I realized that I could learn things here. And so, you know, my my intuition said this is the place to go. And it was close enough that um, it wouldn't be as so much of a burden on my parents because I could commute. So it wow. um, you know it, it, it solved a lot of problems. And I was so lucky in that intuitive step because I had one of the best educations an artist could possibly Desire. I mean, it was a wonderful program. The teachers, yeah. two of my instructors, won Pulitzer Awards for their, um, their artwork. Wow. If you want to look up Rudolf Zallinger, he's the artist who um, came up with the silhouette of the evolution of man from ape turning to man.
0: And oh. he also did,
1: um, he was one of the first artists to visualize what dinosaurs looked like. He Rudolph did a Peabody Museum. 120 feet long, 16 feet tall, showing you all the various ages the Cretaceous and the Jurassic and the Triassic periods, all displayed in one continuous mural. Mm. Uh, he did it when he was 24 years old. It took him four years and he won a Pulitzer for it. It was just an incredible. And he was working with paleontologists and, at the Peabody. You know, they were discovering they had all these bones and things and they were trying to figure out what, what the creatures looked like. And he visualized that.
0: Wow. So you knew early on that you wanted to be an illustrative artist. You know, I only recently encountered the term imaginative realism or illustrative realism. And I think it's a fascinating field, this idea that you're imagining something, but you're trying to make it a reality. You're making it realistic. And in fact, I, I wanted to thank you for this illustration that you did and sent me In our email correspondence, and I just want to describe it for people. Don, you sent me this great picture for Christmas of a commission you did of this kind of this Saint Paulie's type girl with the beer mugs, but she's an elf, and she's riding a jackalope. And I just can picture her going around to the elves in the workshop who maybe are like you know have been making toys, and they're just so exhausted that she has to ride over to them and save them by feeding, you know, maple syrup or mead directly into their mouth from this big barrel that this rabbit is carrying on his, on his back like a, like a St. Bernard rescue dog. It's just fabulous. I, can we share that down below in the podcast so you guys can see it then?
1: Sure. Every year I do my own holiday cards and uh, there's a fellow who Um, enjoys this kind of imaginative artwork and he has his favorite artists and he commissions each artist each year to do a holiday card that he sends to all his friends and other artists and I was the guy this year and uh his prerequisite was that you know he likes some kind of a of a of a a babe if you will on the cover it has to be some he's into pinup art and things and
0: she looks a little bit like an elf witch
1: (laughs) some kind of a, a holiday related pun And the pun associated with that image is Hoppy Holidays, which is, (laughs) um, she's got all, you know, I I use for inspiration the St. Pauli beer girl. I gave her pointy ears and she's got these huge beer mugs and she's got a barrel full of beer and and the rabbit's got his own supply. And you'll notice that there's a little bit of a
0: there's some hops mistletoe sticking out a bag in the back
1: between the antlers on the on the bunny because yeah. you know they they breed like rabbits so you figure that you know he wants some incentive so he's got the <laughs> mistletoe going and um, so it's a it, you know it's it's all i like having fun for the holidays and this is my idea of fun and in, in the sack behind her instead of toys there's bits of hops to yeah. carry the theme
0: oh i love it it's it's so great and so you know, we talk about art and what you make and finding your niche, and we've talked a little bit about product and all the different things that you've tried. So you still do commission work and you do paintings. Um, I met you at EluxCon, which was an incredible event where all these amazing artists go and, and sell their originals. But can you talk a little bit about the different types of like things that you do? Like, how does your work get out there? What products do you put your work on? You have originals. You have magic cards. You've done Captain Morgan. You do these commissions. Can you talk a little bit to that?
1: Okay, I'd like to back up a little bit and then sure. go forward on this. Yeah, you were talking about imaginative realism. Yeah, it's a new term for an old, an old art form. Yeah, uh, one of the original artist to do this kind of artwork was Hieronymus Bosch.
0: Oh, I his, love Bosch.
1: His popular painting would have been the, the Garden of Earthly Delights. Yep. And incredibly imaginative. The creatures are just unworldly. And, yeah, you and tried and to pick heaven and hell, right? You know, and then you're dealing with the Sistine Chapel, you know, and to me, you know, it's a, it's, it's a wonder of the world, and it's also one of the best pieces of illustration ever done.
0: I never um, thought you're of that. Talking
1: about, you know, taking what's written in the Bible and visualizing it. And Michelangelo incredibly visualized mm-hmm. it on his back in wet cement, you yeah. know, space on scaffolding, which made the, made the process even more incredible. But, you know, this is this is an art form that is not just new. It's, it's been going on for 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 centuries. I mean, That's even when really your good. Renaissance painters right. were, were doing paintings for the church. They were, you know, the Annunciation. they're imagining what an angel looks like, you know, they're imagining, you know, all the, all the, the parts of the Bible. And so it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's not, you know, looking at something and then painting it, which a lot of art is. This is taking something that's, that's written or inspired and trying to visualize and communicate what you're reading into a visual form.
0: Wow. You make a really good point, Don.
1: I do lots of different things. Because I enjoy lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoy reading books. And I've done probably 250 book covers, at least, of uh, imaginative books. And, and you know, I've recently illustrated uh, volumes of uh, books by Stephen King for Small Press Publishing.
0: Yeah, 250. Isaac Asimov and Stephen King. Yes. I know some of your covers. They're incredible.
1: And. I get a manuscript and I read it and I say, Okay, what inspired me in, in this writing and what would a reader enjoy about what's going on in this story that I could portray on the cover that would be attractive? You know, telling a book by its cover is is somebody go, Oh, nobody can do that, but that's exactly my job description when I'm given mm. that kind of an assignment.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know, I mentioned way back when um, I was a kid, I was into comic books, and I almost became a professional comic book artist. This was yeah. another thing that you know helped inspire my um, my ulcer, because <laughs> I had some people saying you should become a comic book artist. I actually was interviewed in New York City at DC offices in Rockefeller Center by the vice president of um, DC Comics at the oh. time, Dick Giordano. Wow! Um, I had a neighbor in a neighboring town who was one of the preeminent DC artists. He did Aquaman and Batman. His name was Jim Aparo. And I used to sit <laughs> at his side while he was doing his, his comic art. And he did wow. pencils, inks, and lettering too. And oh. the idea about um, comic art is it's, it goes, the, the concept goes back to Egyptian times when oh. you're dealing with the, with the, the pictures that the artists were showing of, you know, the pharaoh did this and then they reaped the grain and it was all in pictographs or pictures. Yeah. And, you know, they were sequential. So this was very much what's going on in comics, only they added, you know, the, the word balloons. Yeah. And when you're dealing with, with comics, you're dealing with designing within a page and designing within panels within a page. So there's a lot of um, design and graphic knowledge mm-hmm. that you're coming to bear to make that story come across in a sequential manner and then you gotta design around typography. Yeah. And then you have to exaggerate things. So it's a it's an art form that really gets your juices flowing and makes you makes you apply yourself. Yeah. And having done that ahead, when I went to art school, I sailed through a lot of the classes that people had trouble with because I had done all this ahead of time with the comic books. Yeah. Something that came from my art school that I'd like to relate, and that is um, sure. at first when I heard this, it was ta- it was told to me by a watercolor teacher who was pretty much a, a, a national expert on perspective. Oh. But he, he said something, and at first I, I kind of scoffed at it. I thought he was telling a joke, but really what he was saying was the keys to the kingdom. And it isn't just kingdom of art, it's any kingdom. Ooh, enlighten said, us. The first thousand are the hardest. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that is good advice, you know. um...
1: If you can persist enough to do a thousand repetitions of anything, Uh okay, when you drive a car, it takes you about a thousand times to get any good at it, or at least respectable. Yeah. You know, I mean, anything that you do, if you repeat it a thousand times, the synapses in your brain are going to make better connections, And if you have the persistence, you know. I mean, I am not a musician. I mean, I tried it. You know, I mean, I tried drumming, and I would have been a great drummer if, except for I had no rhythm and no sense of timing. (laughs) But you know, I mean, I couldn't apply myself, and and I couldn't bring myself to do it a thousand times. Right. And when I did, I found that when I got there, I didn't like it. Again, you know, I was talking about persistence and intuition. My intuition said, "Don't persist."
0: Yeah. There's a book out there about mastery of things. Tim, Tim Ferriss has made a, a name for himself with the four-hour work week, but he talks about breaking something down and, you know, doing it a thousand hours or something like that. The
1: Native Americans have an interesting way of, of teaching or raising their children, if you will. They let the, the kids do anything. Watch for a smile. Who's this? Whatever they, the kid is doing and he's smiling,
0: yeah. he,
1: they give them more of it. And it's an interesting way of, of rearing a child instead of saying, you know, like, you got to do math, you know, you got to know algebra three. I mean, you know, you got to, you know, you got to be a, a doctor, you got to, you know, yeah. instead, watch what makes them happy and then keep giving them until they see if that's something that they want to pursue. It's, it's a unique way of raising a child. I'd like to talk briefly sense. about something that uh, my wife and I got involved with, and it's called uh, Mythic Journeys and it's a documentary, and it goes into this um, kind of in an interesting fashion. Mythic Journeys, it's all about storytelling and how important it is. I mean, Deepak Chopra is one of the people interviewed in this documentary, and he says that um, if you want to know a culture, don't look at the news. That's just journalism. Look at their myths,
0: and then you understand
1: what they're about. You understand their motivations. You understand their their preferences, how their how their culture is developed, you know their their stories and their myths are what inspire them. Uh-huh. And um, this documentary goes into the various myths, and it it's it's animated in some parts. They um, one of the artists that uh, is, is important in the imaginative realism field, uh, Brian Froud and his wife Wendy Froud. Yeah, who worked with Jim Henson, provided some puppets for this. Yep,
0: yep, Yoda tale. and.
1: My wife and I did some provided artwork that acted as segues in this. But anyway, it's available on Netflix, and, of course, you can get it. Um, and there's a, um, a DVD you can order. It's um, You go to www.mythmovie.net, and you okay. can see a preview of it. But in one of the previews, um, Deepak Chopra says that, you know, if you've got a child who's really, really good at soccer, don't make him slavishly go after math. He, you know, if he's really a good soccer player, he can hire an accountant, you know, <laughs> let him do what he's good at.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great advice for anybody, you know. It's been my goal with all these interviews, all the research I've been doing, my whole academic career, to figure out how to make money with your art. And I imagine that that's probably what you're trying to do too, right? We all want to do something that we love for a living. Yeah? Totally. Who wouldn't? Who wants a dead-end job? So, after all this research and all these interviews, I've discovered four secrets. The four top secrets to making money with your art. And now, I have a 12-page report outlining the four top secrets to Making money with your art. You can download this guide for free at how to make money with That's right, I got that domain name. So just head on over to how to make all spelled out, no numbers, and get your free report on how to make money with your art. How we've talked a little bit about your art and about product. And now we're this is a great segue into educating your audience with stories. That is one thing that I think is so important in selling art and making a career in art is telling a story around images. Your artwork has a story kind of linked right into it. And I'd like to ask you more specifically. You said just a minute ago about illustrating books, how do you pick that one defining moment to illustrate? How do you tell a story around your art and pick that story when you've got a whole book to choose from? Any advice there?
1: Again, you know, intuition, you know, uh, y- y- you you kind of wait for, you know, that that feeling inside you that says, "I think this is worth pursuing." And then you pursue it and see if it it rings a bell for for you, or if you want to continue doing it. In other words, if it makes you smile, then continue it. My wife mm, has an interesting theory. In. Let's and hear it. It is um, when you're doing something that's important, important to you, important to your soul, important to your career path. The clock stops, and what she means by Flow. that is, if if you're doing something you don't like, you watch the clock to make you know to say, oh boy, you know it's almost five o'clock. I can be out of here. You know, I can remember in, in in elementary school just waiting for that clock to tick so I could get out of school. And the converse of that is, if you're doing something that you really enjoy, time is irrelevant. It's like you know, oh my God, it's it's you know, it, it, look what time it is. You know, yeah. it's like where would it go? You no, know, where did the day go? You know, it's like you are so enmeshed in in what's important to you that the clock becomes irrelevant, and that's an indication that you know you might be onto something that you know, is important to you or important to you in some way that you don't understand right now.
0: And I guess if you're reading something and you hit a spot and you come up from it and you're like, oh, I've been reading for an hour and it felt like five minutes, maybe that's a good indicator that that's the, the storyline, right?
1: In commercial, you know, you're selling a product, okay? and And yeah. so you have to be aware of, you know, there's a product involved. So, you know, in a in illustrating a book, the book is the product, mm-hmm. and the inside of that book is a product as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you're trying to reach a specific audience. You know, for example, if you're doing a, a an imaginative medieval um, story, you've got to have some kind of armor or something medieval involved in it. You know, to relate the story to a reader, and the reader can say, "Oh, it's about this." Visually, you know, if it's a yeah. science fiction story, you need some kind of um, imagery that is going to relate to the people that it's science fiction. And so there's that kind of a hook. And then what I find is that, you know, I have to kind of figure out the flavor of the story. Is it, is it a colorful story? Then I'll reach for a brighter palette. If it's a, if it's a dark, you know, like ominous story, then, you know, I'm going to reach for a darker, um, uh, value pattern. If it's very dramatic, I'm going to reach for, You know, opposites uh, in Mm. in both light and dark, and in color. You know, I'll reach for opposites in the color wheel to make it dramatic. You know, Ah. if it's a moody story, then I'm going to reach for the middle tones and make it so that it's kind of gray, nebulous. Okay, so I'm trying to you know find key words that relate to the story and use how they how images affect your subconscious to communicate with you.
0: Oh, that's great advice. Using your color palette. Choosing a color palette to invoke the mood of the story. Brilliant. Love it. Well,
1: actually, mood can be identified pretty quickly with the values. And when I'm talking Mm -hmm. about values, it's the absence and uh, presence of light. You have white at one end, black at the other. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. We've been conditioned to realize that, you know, the good guys wear the white hats and the bad guys wear the black hats. Mm -hmm. So if you've got, you know, something bad going on, you reach for the dark side of that value scale. If Mm -hmm. you have something light and happy, you reach for the light side of that value scale. And that sets the mood immediately just by how light and how dark it is. And again, if you're undetermined or it's a gray area, you reach for the middle of that. And so if you want, you know, if you want like elevator music, you know, you pick something that's kind of in the gray area, you know, and if you want something that's really going to affect somebody, you reach for the outer limits and put them close together.
0: Right, right. Very cool. So let's talk um getting bigger, automating and amplifying. So we use the acronym appeals, art, product, presenting your work, p for presentation, e for educating through story, and then I try and help artists talk about how do we get bigger? How do we amplify through automation? Now, you're from a generation where networking was really important, right? Like what have been some of the best things you've had happen to you for getting opportunities, like going to conferences or just talking to people? What have you found to be some of the most effective techniques for finding opportunities?
1: I don't think there's any one path and you got to realize that when I entered this field it was a whole different environment than it is today. I mean, you know, there was no of course. internet, you know. I, mean, yeah. uh, I at the time I lived close enough to New York City where I could actually get on a train and bring my paintings into the publishers' offices and show them what I did. And I did that, you know, every two weeks for for a long time, a couple of years, before I started getting jobs regularly. I also was very careful in that I picked specific markets. Uh-huh. When I left art school, I realized that you know, the, what my teachers were doing and what my fellow students were doing was nice, but that wasn't the world. I, I went into bookstores and carefully looked at what the publishers were publishing. Mm-hmm. And I geared my portfolio that I was showing these publishers two specific areas within the publishing. And at that time, it was a very small genre. I mean, science fiction and fantasy paintings used to be in the back of the bookstore behind the Westerns. And (laughs) people would literally rip the covers off of the book so people wouldn't see they were reading that stuff. And today, you know, I mean, you've got Game of Thrones, you know, and Stephen King and all this all over the bookstores, you know, front and center. I mean, it's, it's a major part of our, uh, our media now, but back then it was a really a backdoor into this, um, into this, uh, business. And I targeted that specifically At the time. There weren't many artists in that field. I could, yeah. I could name 10 that huh. were vying for jobs in an exploding market. So huh. it was easier for me back then with the right artwork to place it. And, and and that led into going you know I did my first uh, comic book convention when I was in high school
0: uh-huh. and
1: uh, I did my first uh, science fiction fantasy convention back in like you know 1970 after I've been working just a couple of years and there I met authors I met publishers I met the art directors in person and I was able to show them what I was doing because there was an art show right there right. so you know there was meeting the publishers meeting people at conventions And then, you know, once you started getting book covers and, you know, it's a, it's a catch 22. How do you get a job if you haven't done a job? How do you prove that you are are viable? Right. And so, you know, anything that, that shows that you're professional, that you can put in a portfolio saying, this is a a printed cover that I did. And you show it to someone, they can go, aha, he can deal with, he or she can deal with a deadline. You know, they, they can work Mm -hmm. under pressure. They have, You know, the work looks good in reproduction. There's all these things when you have something actually done. And so, you know, I wouldn't, some people won't do a job because it doesn't pay enough. Any job that you like is an opportunity because, you know, you own the artwork. You can And and if you're careful with your contracts, you can do other things with it than that initial job. And so, you know, every painting, every creation that you do, is basically a a billboard for your career.
0: Excellent. I think what I take away from that is that you A, did your research, B, you found a niche and focused on that niche, and then C, you showed up and you persevered. You, You showed them again and again and again. You said you went in every two weeks and you networked. I really believe that personal connection, connecting through story, connecting with people personally, Is still incredibly valuable even in the internet age. Maybe even more so because people are bombarded daily by emails seeking out, you know, opportunities. So showing that you show up over and over again and connecting over and over again is so important. You mentioned contracts, Dawn. And I think this is a great segue into the contracts and licensing part. So we've got appeals, art, product, presentation. Educate, amplify, and then licensing and contracts. Contracts are so important. What can you tell us about licensing and contracts? You've had so much experience with book covers and Captain Morgan, and you said if you're careful with your contracts, what tips and advice and tricks could you uh, share with us about contracts?
1: Okay. The basic ingredient of someone's creativity is an intellectual property. Yep. And there is something called the copyright laws.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: if you understand how copyright works, you can better negotiate a contract. One thing that is very important to understand is work for hire and what it means. Work for hire was instituted in the copyright law for people that worked as employees for a company you know it it started out with people like that that did work for like a textbook company they were on staff they got vacations they got steady paychecks mm-hmm. okay and so this work for hire means any work that they did for that employer was the employer's property they mm-hmm. had no authorship and authorship means that they can't say that they did it it's like you know working for Disney the person that actually draws Mickey Mouse can't say they drew Mickey Mouse. They are an employee of Disney and they do what Disney tells them to do and Disney owns their work because it's under a work-for-hire contract. Right. Now, the thing about a work-for-hire contract is if you're an independent contractor, a work-for-hire contract isn't good. If you can get out from under and work-for-hire contract as an independent contractor, you need to do that because um, in the motion picture industry, has pretty much said, "You, it's a work for hire contract. I know a couple artists that have gotten around it, but they've been in the business a long time and they're specific and, and also they're, they're sort of grandfathered in, in a way. Yeah. But a motion picture, you know, nobody wants, you know, if you draw, you know, Chewbacca or something, you can't go out and make prints and do all this stuff because you do because you were under a work for hire contract with Lucasfilm, for example. Right. Same thing with Disney. Now, there are other companies, the gaming companies, for example, that the lawyers are insisting that they put work for hire in the language of their contracts. And that's because they don't want artists to come back and bite them and, and sell, do something with a character that may develop into something.
0: Well, and there's so much money in licensing those characters as soft toys yes. and on products. So much money.
1: Exactly. So, but on the other side is... There are companies that a copyright is for the creator or the artist's lifetime plus 70 years.
0: Yep. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. How many companies will actually last that long?
0: Mm, good question.
1: And so the thing is that, you know, if you can put in a contract, another term that you want to be aware of is all rights. All rights means you keep the original You can still claim authorship, okay? You can say, I did this, you know, and Mm -hmm. nobody can say you didn't because you just sold all rights to your artwork. If you work for hire, it's not your artwork, it's theirs. So there's this little detail that allows me to say, I did Captain Morgan. I can stand up in front of a, a reproduction of Captain Morgan and point at it and say, I did it because I did not sign work for hire. I signed a different kind of contract. So it gives you authorship. You can claim that you did it. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, you asked about Captain Morgan. Mm -hmm. I was able to talk about it because I still retained authorship. Okay. Right. All rights means that you're selling all reproduction rights. So essentially, you're giving away your copyright. Right. Now- that means that for your lifetime plus 70 years someone else owns the right to reproduce that image okay that's right. not a really a good deal especially if that company goes defunct you've lost your copyright and they're not using it and so that's an image you've lost control over uh-huh. so if you can take an all right situation and put a time limit on it give oh, them good. 3 years 5 years 10 years right you know you still got your lifetime plus 70 years And if they sign that contract and they say, wow, it's still doing great. Can we renew this? Go, sure, no problem. But you still can control that image. It's not gone to you. Okay?
0: Great tip. Exclusive
1: is another word you want to be very aware of in a contract. Because Mm -hmm. exclusive means that only that particular client can use it. Okay? Uh For example, I've done a book cover. And I would sell North American reproduction rights. That means that they sell the book in North America. If a foreign publisher wanted to do that book, I could and use my cover, I could sell it to them again because it's in another geographic location.
0: Right. Great so tip. what you want, you know, your
1: copyright is like your pie and you want to sell slices of the pie. You don't want to just give the pie to somebody. Huh. So the idea of limiting the time limit, limiting the geographic. Limiting what specific products they can use. If you're selling a book cover, if you're doing a, a job that's a book cover for a book cover publisher, they're not likely to make prints of that. They're not likely to make t shirts. They're not likely to make greeting cards. They're not likely to make whatever from that. They're selling books. That's their job. So why give them everything else they're not going to use when you could potentially use it sometime in your lifetime or 70 years? So it makes sense to really be aware of what you're selling specifically in a contract.
0: Right. So you really have to delineate. That's great advice. Watch for exclusivity. Watch for regions. Watch for timelines. Brilliant. Excellent. So success. The appeals acronym stands. I'm just trying to take all this information and put it in a, a manageable format. And I think as artists, we oftentimes have these successes, but we don't stop to appreciate them or even measure them or reward ourselves for them. What are some tips or tricks that you like to use to kind of stop and share your successes with people or to celebrate them? Or how do you even measure success? It's kind of a nebulous thing for us artists. It's so you gotta realize
1: that there's a As an artist, it's pretty solitary you know you're you're by yourself and you better be happy with what you're doing because you're going to spend a lot of time doing it you know in a room by yourself figuring it out you know Mm -hmm. I mean it's a it's 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 a solitary pursuit and when there's an opportunity to interact with other people take it because it, you, you can share, you learn, you know, I mean, I've gone yeah. to, um, demos watching other artists work, you know, it gets me out of the house and I can see how other people solve visual problems. I got a, uh, a six, a, 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 and this is why, you know, when we met at a LuxCon, it's an opportunity for me to show what I do and also see what other people are doing and, and interact and exchange ideas and yeah and share in the camaraderie that normally doesn't exist in your day to day. And learn little tips here and there. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful exchange, and many artists are very sharing in what they do. I mean, there are some that, you know, think that it's a, it's a priority and nobody can take what they do. But in, in reality, you know, we all are influenced in some way, shape, or form, and we, we borrow it, it from time to time and process it. So anyway, you know, the idea of success is, is you know, being able to put food on the table, do what you want to do, and, and still enjoy what you're doing. Mm. But I have an interesting success story, if I can share with you. Yeah,
0: please. I want to hear it.
1: Okay. I was introduced to someone who introduced me and my work to a convention that happens in Lucca. It's in the Tuscany, Italy. Mm. And it is one of the largest comic conventions in the world. I think they have like 140,000 people. It's very close to San Diego Comic-Con. Wow. And it takes place in this little Italian walled city (laughs) that was never bombed during the war.
0: Wow, that sounds gorgeous.
1: I was invited as their artist guest. And in exchange for me being their guest, I had to do a, a painting that would be used as their promotional material for the event. Mm -hmm. And that year, an Italian adventure artist, Emilio Salgari, was the featured guy, and they gave me material that he wrote, and I was to produce a, one of his characters as, as the feature for this because they were honoring this Italian adventure writer. Okay. And he did a character who was uh, an Indian during the British occupation of India, and he was a resistance fighter. His name was Sandokan. So I chose that character and did a painting of, of this character. Now, they wanted to hang the painting in Italy and they didn't trust Italian customs. So when they purchased airfare for my wife and I to, to come to Italy, they bought an extra seat on the airplane for my painting. <laughs> so cool. So we're flying across the Atlantic with, you know, Janny on one side and a seatbelt over a portfolio with my painting going to Italy. <laughs> and, uh, when I, and I mailed a, a frame there ahead of time. And so when I got to Italy, the place where I was putting the frame on the painting was over the Stable for Napoleon's sister's horses. If Whoa. you can imagine. It was a, uh, yes, okay. So, Aww. you know, we're getting, it's getting weird. And <laughs> the, the town is um, all narrow streets. It was built on Roman ruins. There was a Roman amphitheater and, and a medieval village was built on top of it. And yeah. it, it reminds me very much of um, Diagon Alley in the Harry Potter films all narrow, narrow streets with all these shops and things going yeah. on. And they wouldn't allow cars in there. And usually there were 8,000 people living in and around that city. And during this event, there were 140,000 oh. people. So it was really intense. And so my painting is, uh, they told me, come visit my paintings. It's a—it's at the Palazzo Ducale, which is the Ducal Palace, okay? So I'm going to the Ducal Palace, and there's a red carpet with marble stairs and brass railings on either side. Oh. And so I'm going up this marble stairs with a red carpet to view my painting.
0: <laughs> Your okay. painting was a celebrity.
1: They only have churches. They don't really have a convention center. So the opening ceremonies and the award ceremonies are taking place in this old medieval church. Ooh. And so you're going down, you know, the aisle and there's pews on either side with niches and all these, you know, Renaissance paintings. Yeah. Within the niches and you're going up to the front where the altar is and they've made a stage just below the altar. And in front of the altar is a screen. And it's a rear projection screen with my painting on the screen. So it's like, you know, I'm going into the church of Don Mates art.
0: (laughs) You give me chills like you're marrying your own art.
1: (laughs) I tell you, you know, my hat size went up three sizes after that convention.
0: Oh, that's so cool. That is so cool. Yeah, that is a success story for real. Oh, that is so brilliant. I love it. Well, Don, I would like to close with one more question. I love to ask at the end of all these about books you would recommend. Um, it can be your own book. It would be. It could be a that you would give as a gift to an aspiring artist or anyone, really.
1: I'm a nuts and bolts kind of a, a person. You know, I mean, I know, you know, your program is really into marketing and, you know, how do I make a living at this? And how do I, but, you know, to me, you know, making the art is my primary function. I yeah. mean, if you don't have that, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are really great in marketing, but sometimes they their marketing doesn't have a lot of substance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, my advice, you know, I mean, is go to some, you know, get advice from someone else about marketing because, you know, I'm, I do a slideshow for my pirate art and I call it Blunder for Plunder. <laughs> because basically that's that's my 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 advice. You know, I mean I blunder along and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes licensing is up, sometimes licensing is down something. I don't have those answers, you know. But I, you've and, had and,
0: so much experience. The
1: internet is not me. But books I would recommend yeah. for people who wanna know nuts and bolts how to communicate with their artwork better. One of them is by Andrew Loomis called Creative Illustration. Mm. And he really goes into how to work with photographs, for example, so that you can counter the distortion inherent in photos. He goes into how to set up a value pattern. Simplify values so that your idea comes across quicker and faster. Uh huh. Um, it's a it's a wonderful tool. He was a contemporary of um, Norman Rockwell, mm. and so he was using a lot of um, Norman Rockwell esque devices to be able to carry across what was going on. And and basically, it's it's design, composition, working with values, working with shapes, working with lines, working with textures, working with colors. All this is is when you look and you see and when you create, you work with five things and that's it. It's just like a musician works with, you know, time signatures and treble and yeah. bass and all that, you know, and an author they work with sentences and word fragments and punctuation. Yeah. Artists work with five things. That's how that's all we have. Every every image ever done by anybody contains five elements. Everything you see contains five elements. And they are are... line, shape, tone, color, and texture. Excellent. That's it. I mean, when you see art, that's what you're looking at. And the books that really explain that are the one I just described, Andrew Loomis, uh, Creative Illustration, and the two books by James Gurney.
0: James Gurney. One
1: is Imaginative Realism, and the other one is Color and Light. And he's actually going into scientific research on why things happen. I mean, you know, when you see a water drop, why does it look like that? When you see a rainbow, how is the light refracted? How does reflected light work? You know, how does looking at a sky? How do you know how how the sky changes from one corner to another because of the way the sun is positioned? You know, what color is moonlight? I mean, these are you know things that he goes into these books, and they're they're like art schools in a book. For people wanting to um, improve on their um, artistic abilities.
0: Fabulous. So cool. Well, thank you, Don. This has been awesome. I think you have given us some amazing tips and tricks and some great stories. I've really enjoyed talking to you about all this. Any forthcoming projects you want to share with us?
1: Well, they're about to release, and I think it's already sold out. Stephen King sells his books to small press publishers who do deluxe editions oh. uh, like the old-time Scribner's illustrated books where you saw all the the nice old N.C. Wyeth, Robin Hood, and all this uh-huh. Well, That kind of thing is coming back in publishing through small press publishers. And authors that have a big following, uh, like Stephen King and a few others, are able to take their work and have it produced in a, in a quality book with good binding and illustrations in it. And so I've done uh, Stephen King's The Stand and <gasps> Stephen King's The Shining,
0: Ooh. and
1: um, both of them are, I don't know if they're still available, but they um, are out there. And um, I just, just coming out now from a publisher called Grim Oak Press, illustrating Raymond Feist's book fairy tale and um i'm doing his uh, rift war series and the first book is the magician and my artwork is on the cover that i did for mass market and they're reusing it on this book and i'm doing interior illustrations
0: for it oh very cool are you gonna do a signing anywhere I still or anything
1: enjoy illustrating books it's a uh, I really enjoy the process of reading and doing that. And I still do covers now and again.
0: Excellent. Are you going to sign these anywhere? I want a signed copy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're all signed. That's, that's part of the deal. Oh, you get a signed.
0: Excellent.
1: Stand books are from PS Publishing in the UK. And there's a, a fellow who has, he's trying to get 10 copies so he can sell them to other people. But basically... Um, they're sold out right from the publisher. I mean, wow. the fans want these books so badly that you know they're they're gone, but you would probably get them on a secondary market.
0: Good problem to have. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Don. This has been so illuminating. <laughs> Unintended.:
1: Well, that's good. I'm glad I'm able to help. I'm much better. Working with my hands than I am with my mouth. But, you know, as my dad said, you know, with <laughs> my big mouth, I'd make a politician. It's not a, it's, it's nothing I would really want to pursue. But he kind of knew that, um, you know, my mouth was yeah. over exercised.
0: Hey, and one more question for you, Dawn. If somebody wanted to get a commissioned work, where and how could they go and commission you? Go to
1: my website or email me. I'm terrible on Facebook. Messenger, all that I, you know, for for reasons I won't go into, I really don't like Facebook (laughs) and I I I actually probably haven't blogged for a year. I'm I'm probably gonna put my my Christmas card on my blog, but that's about it. Mm. I'm very good at email. My email address is Donmates D-O-N-M-A-I-T-Z at haravia.com and that's spelled p is in peter a is in andy r is in ralph a is in andy v is in victor i is in indiana jones and a is in andy and i respond very well to emails
0: excellent i think i want a commissioned piece i didn't tell you when you were talking about pirates i'm actually related to the pirate jean lafitte he's my eight or 10 times great grandfather really yeah yeah government hooked me up with a um a lineage many many years ago I actually hooked up my great grandmother with a lineage. So yeah, I'm related to the pirate Jean Lafitte. Maybe I'll commission you to try and depict him. Although I don't think there's any actual depictions of him out there since that would have been a really long time ago.
1: I'd have to do some research. You know, I've got you know a, a pretty good library. I could probably see what what's what with that. You were mentioning you know your 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 heritage on that, and um, the reason I kind of gravitated to pirates um, it was sort of preordained because I was named after my dad and it, we have we share the same middle name which is mm-hmm. Raymond so okay became Don R. mates
0: <laughs> well my little one has the middle name Lafitte so gotta pass those pirate roots down man <laughs> I yes. love it I love it well this has been wonderful thank you so much well, that's it for the Artist Appeals. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal, and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com. That's the Artist appeals, A-P-P-E-A-L-S.com. Thanks and have a good one.